Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the SAM Biosketch series, where we talk to leaders in emergency medicine research about their journeys and what they've learned. My name is Cole Lettingoff. I'm a medical student and member of the SAM Research Committee. Today, we're excited to have with us Dr. Philip Levy. Dr. Levy is the Edward S. Thomas Endowed Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Wayne State University and currently serves as Associate Vice President for Translational Research in the Office of the Vice President for Research. In addition, Dr. Levy is the Director for the Center for Population Health Accountability for Wayne Health and is a fellow of multiple professional societies, including the American College of Emergency Physicians, American Heart Association, and American College of Cardiology. Dr. Levy is a leading cardiovascular disease researcher and has overseen more than 110 funded studies from various entities since his arrival at Wayne State in 2002, including the CDC, AHA, and NIH. He has an H index of 41 with more than 250 published manuscripts and textbooks chapters and has been invited to lecture on cardiovascular disease and other healthcare topics more than 100 times. Dr. Levy, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you. Thanks, Cole. Good to be here. And thanks for for reading that bio. I always get a little embarrassed when people read something that you wrote about yourself, but thanks for for going through that. Well, it's an incredible journey and something you should really be proud of. And and we're excited to learn a little bit about your perspective and and, and hopefully how we can follow in your footsteps here. Before we get into a little bit of your role as an EM research leader and and some of the stuff that you've done to cultivate other leaders, I just want to learn a little bit more about your journey as an EM researcher and, and how you got started. Sure. So I did my my training at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, NYU Bellevue. And that program has always been academically oriented, has always had a mindset of inquisition and investigation. And early on in my training, when I was an intern, it's a four-year program. So, you know, the first year is technically an internship year, although, you know, we don't really use that term anymore. I was indoctrinated into the, the mindset of asking questions and trying to come up with ways to answer them, even if the information doesn't yet exist, meaning you would have to design a study to get at that new understanding. So I had gotten involved in some work early on with a colleague who had been doing some preliminary work on on new biomarkers for intra-abdominal abnormalities and really liked the process of background literature search, pulling articles and synthesizing cogent discussion, a rationale for why you want to go forward with a certain investigation, designing the investigation, conducting the investigation, pulling in the data. So it started all that process around this new biomarker, but really where things took off for me was after one of my attendings, uh, Peter Gordon, who's one of the people who mentored me while I was in residency, he's at Albany now, had gotten some funding from the Open Society, George Soros's foundation, to do preliminary work helping to build out emergency medicine in the country of Romania. Turns out Romania was one of the European countries early on that had adopted the mindset of an Americanized emergency department structure with residency training and whatnot. The rest of Europe has now caught up in many ways, but Romania was really a leader. And this funding brought an opportunity to have myself and and other residents go over to Romania. And when I was there, I saw them doing some very interesting practices around treating acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema or acute hypertensive heart failure, as we call it now, and had gotten really interested in this. They were doing something, giving boluses of really large doses of nitroglycerin intravenously to people who had significant respiratory distress with marked the elevated blood pressures, and these patients were rapidly improving and getting better. Normally, these folks would have gotten intubated in our clinical practice setting in America. And over there, they were getting these big doses of nitroglycerin and doing much better, not needing intubation. And so 
I took that learning that came from working over there and started designing some research around initially, how do we replicate this? How do we do further study of the clinical effectiveness or efficacy in a smaller trial of treatment for this acute hypertensive heart failure, or again, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, as we referred to it then, and had designed a study that was unfunded, that we conducted in Romania, had gotten through the IRB, a whole bunch of hoops that we had to go through. Ultimately, it didn't turn out to be the best study. It wasn't something that was largely publishable or anything like that, although I did present it at the SAM annual meeting when we got through our first results. But then that started the pathway for me when I left Bellevue and, and took my faculty job that I still have at Wayne State. It really started me on a pathway of becoming a clinical and research expert in the area of cardiovascular medicine, focusing on heart failure. I was able to translate that work in Romania and that preliminary study into an EMF grant, Emergency Medicine Foundation grant, to study high-dose nitroglycerin in Detroit. And that was where my research career really began, getting that first grant-funded opportunity to do work for a study that I designed and led. And it was really exciting and really set me on the path that, that I'm on now. And it's certainly been an incredible path. I know a lot of the researchers that we talk to talk about getting that first grant and, and really describe it with a lot of excitement. And I know for many of our, our listeners that it can be a scary journey. Any advice for those getting started who, who may be interested in, in doing some research, may perhaps have, have done some sort of small-scale project either in school or in residency and are trying to turn that corner into being a grant-funded researcher? Sure. Well, Perhaps the most important thing to understand is when you start off and you do unfunded research, often chart reviews or or what have you, you get in this mindset that, hey, I can do any study I want. I don't need money for this. And the reality is you do, especially if you're going to do interventional studies and you're going to randomize people to different arms and you have to do follow-up and all of that. And so I think first and foremost, it's making that transition and understanding what research really is. Research can be chart reviews and it can be sweat equity and it can be non-funded work, but to really move things forward, you're going to need to get funding. And in order to get funding, you really need someone who's gotten funded before to help guide the process because writing grants is not the same as writing papers, even though in both circumstances, you're trying to convince people, if you will, of your argument and, and why they should believe in it. From a paper perspective, it's relatively finite, right? This is what we did. This is what we saw. This is what we think. From a grant perspective, you're really trying to lay out a roadmap for the reviewer to understand where you're trying to go. So starting out trying to convince people first and foremost that your idea has value, that, that it's significant is key. And that can come from just a preliminary work describing what others have done in the field. But what you really want to be able to do is identify a gap that justifies or gives rationale to why someone should fund you to do the next level of work. And so getting that skill set down to be able to write in that persuasive manner is tough. And that, that's where mentorship really comes in. And I think people who've experienced some taste of success with unfunded work often think that it readily translates to funded work, and it doesn't. And once you get into that area where you're starting to write grants, it's more important a lot of times to listen and seek advice and not think yourself the expert yet, right? Even though you may have developing content expertise in the area you're trying to study, but the process itself of writing grants and getting funded is, is a different ballgame. And so 
really knowing that you have that mentorship community that's going to help you get along is really important. And then learning how to write a grant to get funded is a skill that takes time and it takes a lot of failure before you get success. And, you know, the failure shouldn't be something that demoralizes people. It should be something that humbles but encourages people to move forward because you'll eventually hit on a grant, right? If you keep at it, but for sure, and I'm sure you've heard this from others, the only grant that's 100% certain not to get funded is a grant you don't submit. Absolutely. And we've heard time and time again that grant funding is such a distinct skill set and you need some specialized mentorship in that field and an incredible impact that mentorship can play on that. I wanted to hit on something that, that you mentioned there that we need to think about what research actually is, particularly within the scope of emergency medicine. I noticed that you've held a number of positions beyond just being a clinician, whether that is leadership role in titles that have research. Uh, you've also a number of titles with the word innovation. I know that there's a lot of discussion right now about innovation medicine, innovation and emergency medicine. Are innovation and research one and the same? They are and they're not. I mean, a lot of times, well, all the time, research is designed to answer a question, right? And that question may be not one of innovation and new practice. It may be one of trying to understand the efficacy or effectiveness of current practice, and that's okay. It may be an epidemiological perspective to understand why group A versus group B has differential outcomes, right? That may not be innovation. But when you start to take the gaps that you identify with that preliminary work and come up with new solutions, that's where you get to the innovation end. But a lot of people can't make that leap, right? A lot of people can't see beyond whatever it is they're interested at the time to step back and say, okay, this is the circumstance. It's not producing the ideal outcomes. I can report on that alone, or I can then start to think of, well, what do I need to do to change that calibration? What do I need to do to make processes better, whether it's taking current workflows and, and amending them or adapting them to a, a certain environment, that's innovation. Whether it's coming up with new technologies that fill a gap that hadn't existed before, that's innovation. But effectively, what innovation is, it's the ability to step back and say, how can I do this differently? And what will I need to put in place to achieve better or different outcomes that I'm getting right now that doesn't exist at present? And in order to study innovation, you do research, right? And so an idea that hasn't been tested or designed before is where innovation and research meet each other. It's not enough just to say, I have this great idea and then expect everyone to glom onto it and say, yeah, you have this great idea. Here's millions of dollars to go forward. It doesn't work that way. You have to prove the value of what it is you're trying to innovate on. And that's where the research end of it comes in. And you're right. I've had a lot of different roles in this because I think one of the unique skills that I've been able to develop over time is understanding enough of the different components of what exists to find out where those gaps lie, and then being able to see or know enough of what is being done or in development, you know, outside of the current practice to see how it could apply to current practice or even new thoughts about practice, which, you know, I know we'll, we'll talk about in a bit related to the, the work we're doing with mobile health outreach pre and post pandemic. But that said, at the end of the day, you know, it starts with the beginning. Like I said, you have to find the people who know this type of stuff and who are willing to give that knowledge or share that knowledge with others who want to grow in that space. And that's why I've played a lot of roles within the world of research. I started out joining the, the ASEP Research Committee, rose to become the chair of the committee, have been leading the research forum for a number of years, and really sought the opportunity to engender this mindset in emergency medicine. I think a lot of times in ER, 
we don't come in with the idea that we can really change medicine or we can change practice because so much of what we do in the ER is intertwined with the rest of the hospital. And so the work that we're doing in the ER often requires two or three or four more layers on top beyond the emergency department, right? And so when we are able to actually understand a little bit more of what we do in the emergency department and the specific perspective and role we play in this continuum of care, it opens up opportunities for people to innovate because they can think a little bit more clearly or maybe a little bit more outside the box of just the regular day-to-day practice that they do or the things that we do that are part of something bigger, right? So to say it a different way, We can think about what are the best ways to intubate a patient in the emergency department, but once that patient leaves the emergency department, the ICU team has to continue on what we're doing, or they have to appreciate and want what it is we're trying to change in order for it to be fully implemented in practice. So getting people to understand how research shapes this, how research allows this to occur, how research provides the validity for these new concepts and ideas is something that's been really important to me throughout my career. Definitely. And that concept of sort of where the boundaries are of of EM research and and the interface with such a complicated healthcare system in the United States has certainly been a common theme for a lot of our emerging research as well. And we see that your research has certainly reached into um, the world of cardiology and some interface with the American College of Cardiology and other groups as well. So EM research certainly is not siloed in the modern era. I do want to get into a little bit more of what you're working on currently and some of your perspective as as a senior leader in research. But before we do that, a couple other questions about your journey as a researcher and as a clinician. Looking through your resume, I noticed that immediately after residency, you moved into a leadership role within your department as an assistant residency director and, and some other roles as well. How were you able to balance that pull of being an administrative, a faculty leader, being a clinician, and, and still finding time and, and energy to do research? Well, that's a great question. I kind of did gloss over or just skip over the stuff that, that I've done within my own program here, focusing on, on the national perspective. But I did come in as the assistant residency director out of my residency program with the focus on scholarly activity. And I think as we've all seen, there's there's a lot more emphasis on more people in the residency leadership taking on specific defined roles rather than having one or two people do everything. And so my role when I came in was around scholarly activity. But that didn't mean I was going to subordinate all of my own research interests for the research efforts that others will be doing, right? So it's a combination of taking what I've done and then translating that knowledge into a roadmap or a pathway for residents to build out their own scholarly activities and careers. And so it's just part of the job when you start, right? This is what I do. I work with people to help them develop their research careers while building up my own research interests. I quickly transitioned, though, once I started getting more grant funding from the residency side of things, because that's tough, right? It's really tough to shepherd 36 residents through their scholarly activity while still doing your own work. I can tell you when we first started that effort, I would meet with every single resident and come up with their scholarly project and then monitor what's going on and and be on top of them to continue moving things forward. Some were self-starters and would get it all done on their own, but a lot of residents really need coaxing and reminding and, and a little bit of a push to go to completion with their scholarly activity and their research. But once I started moving from smaller grant funding from the Emergency Medicine Foundation to bigger grant funding from entities like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and then ultimately the NIH, 
You just don't have enough time to really dedicate your work to the mentorship side. But what was great is I was able to cultivate a couple of people who I worked with through that process of mentorship to take over that program. And then I moved up through our department from associate chair for research in our department and started to get roles at the university level where I first became assistant vice president for translational science and clinical research innovation. And the reason that that happened is because as we were moving forward, developing the program for the residents to cultivate their research interests, we also started developing a program horizontally integrated within our department where we brought in many more resources, research assistants, research coordinators, research nurses to support an environment of investigation. So that in our department, we basically set up this understanding and expectation that every patient who comes in is a potential research patient in a number of different trials. And we supported those trials with some grant funding. We started to work with industry partners, even though a lot of times people perceive industry as sort of the pariah of academia. They're not, right? Industry has very deep pockets and can help build up a program by helping get funding into the program for clinical trial participation. So we built up that infrastructure, which then led us to be in much better position to write grants because we could refer back in the grants to the extensive infrastructure that we have. By building all that infrastructure, I was well positioned to take a leadership role at the university, building up not a similar infrastructure per se, right? Not, not research assistance in ERs, but in infrastructure across the university that can help facilitate people's growth and development in their research endeavors. And so all along the way, you know, it starts off with me developing my side, then helping to develop the skill set of people coming up under me, and then helping to create the environment that fosters success, whether or not I'm involved in the individual projects or not. I hope that makes sense. But it's really taking this transition again of paying it forward. What did I learn in the process? How can I impart what I learned onto individuals? How can I impart what I learned onto systems change? And then how can I implement a system that really fosters success? Definitely. As we're going here, the questions just keep coming and coming. A few sort of rapid fire questions here. You mentioned a lot of the support that was able to be built both within your department and across the university. I know one of the questions that a lot of our students and our residents are, are having to decide is, do they want to be at a university hospital or university affiliated hospital? To be blunt, do you need to be at a university affiliated hospital to do research of this nature to have that kind of support? I think it really depends on which way you want to go. So there are plenty of people who do research that focuses in its entirety on working with industry. And in that sense, industry sets up to support an infrastructure because they'll pay. They'll pay X amount of dollars per patient that you enroll in a study. That money can then be used to hire more coordinators and you know build up that, that infrastructure. You don't have to be in academia to do that. But really, the question becomes, if you're outside of academia and you're doing that, to what end are you doing it for, right? Are you are you doing it for the department? Are you doing it for a practice group? It's very unlikely that a non-academic practice group is going to have a lot of interest in research unless it's bringing in significant revenue. Because once people get out into the quote-unquote real world and they're, they're looking at at their jobs and how much they're making and all of that. A lot of these practice groups aren't going to be interested in research, though they're they're happy to support it if it is something that could potentially benefit 
patients. On the other hand, if you're really interested in pursuing a true career in research, you have to be within academia and you have to really understand what it is you're trying to go for. I think a lot of people have this perception or you know, people who've, who've really jumped with both feet into research have this perception that their goal is always NIH funding. That doesn't have to be the goal either, right? And it's going to be very hard to ever get that goal if you're not in an academic environment surrounded by others who've been successful. But if you are in that academic environment, it's also important to understand you know, why you want to be there. It doesn't have to be to get NIH funding. I'm sure you've heard this from others. You can't let great get in the way of good, right? And so it's really about positioning yourself for success every step along the way. That includes the decision of where you take your first job. And people who generally want to go into research are going to know it early on. It's not something that you're going to move to your career job or your first job and then all of a sudden say, yeah, now I want to jump into research. It happens. It could happen, right? But the reality is that the mindset of a researcher probably predates their decision to go into residency, right? I think some people just think about things and then ask questions and then want to come up with answers to those questions. And other people are just okay, you know, doing what the latest evidence suggests that they do and coming in and doing, you know, 12 to 14 shifts a month. If you're that person, research really isn't for you. If you're a researcher and you're in that position now where you're doing all of this clinical time, you're going to have to figure out some way how you get freedom from that clinical time. And that buy-down comes from getting research dollars, which are only really going to come in that high level if you're in an academic setting. We've certainly yeah, had some conversations ahead. within the SAM Research Committee about when along the pipeline someone decides to make research part of their career. And, and we've largely found you're right that it's it's early in medical school, sometimes even before medical school, that students feel that spark, that desire to make research really part of their career. And that by the time they're in residency, you know, they, they have largely identified a passion for research or not. I think it's important to distinguish a passion for research from the satisfaction and elation that comes from a publication. Right. So, you know, here I am, you know, have hundreds of publications at this point, and I still get excited when publications come through. Right. I, it makes me happy to get my work out there, especially as that work appears in, in higher and higher tier journals. Right. That's important because that's how you can make an impact on science. But at the end of the day, it's it's also important to recognize the distinction between writing a paper, getting it published, and having a career path that's research-oriented. I think a lot of residents want publications. It helps their, their CVs. It's enjoyable to go through that process. But I think people realize as they're doing this that they love it or they hate it, right? Some people love to write papers and some people hate to write papers. If you hate to write papers, research probably isn't the pathway for you. If you love to write papers, that's great, but then you really have to decide how much of the work that leads to the data that leads to the publication do you want to do? You could always be a cog in the machine and participate and help and not be the research leader. You're not going to get a lot of buy-down time for that. You're not going to get a lot of academic support to just be a component of research teams. But at the same time, that's okay too, right? Depending on what it is you want to do in academia. That said, if people want to become hardcore researchers and they're really interested in making this their career, you kind of know it. And I don't know a better way to describe it. You know what makes you happy. And you know if I, as your mentor, say, I want you to send me back you know, a literature review by next week going over this topic, 
if that's a chore to you, you're in the wrong direction. You don't want to be doing that. If it's something that excites you and you turn it in two days early because you just couldn't stop typing, that's somebody who really should be thinking about their career direction in academia. But again, I think a lot of people gravitate towards research because for whatever reason, there's a perception that the researchers are maybe the smarter ones or the more academically geared ones. And that's not the truth. It just depends on where people want to put their energy and the aspiration to be viewed that way should not be the motivation for a career in research. Definitely. So we've talked about finding that dedicated research time and, and a little bit on that first job after residency. Uh, notice that you did not do a fellowship after residency. And we, we've seen fellowships start to become more popular and more research fellowships emerge. Do you wish that you had done a fellowship? Do you think it is more important today than it used to be? Well, I don't wish I had done a fellowship. I don't think I needed it, but I think it's important well, let's say this. I think it depends on how much mentorship you have in the beginning, right? And you can develop the skill set for research without doing a fellowship if you have the right environment around you as you're developing. There's nothing that says that fellows are going to be more funded than people who don't go through fellowships, right? Although what the fellowship does is it gives you that dedicated time earlier in your career where you're not being inundated with clinical shifts, which make it very hard to do additional work, especially if you're starting out with a family and you're moving to a new city and all these things that go with your first career job. So a fellowship has advantages in terms of freeing up time and getting valuable skill sets learned, but a fellowship isn't the only pathway to do this. You can, again, start during residency, build up your content expertise, what appears in the NIH biosketch as contributions to science, right? What have you done work in and how are you building that up? It's hard to build up something extensive during residency. And that's why people gravitate towards those fellowships. It gives you that concentrated time to get some preliminary work done, get some building block publications completed. But I don't think it's a be-all, end-all of research. And I think in some ways, it can even be a little bit of a distraction because it puts you on a pathway of incremental change rather than taking the leap to say, I I'm going to go into a fellowship. I'm going to have this protected period of one to two years. I'm going to move on and you know then start to develop my grants and stuff during that time. You know, I could tell you, I, I've been a, a long-term reviewer for the NIH, and while you look at people who've gone through fellowships perhaps as, you know, a little bit better trained, along the same lines, you can go get an advanced degree, an MPH, a master's in science without doing a fellowship during your early stages of career. I got an MPH while working shifts, while being the, you know, assistant residency director. It was not a huge detriment on my time because I enjoyed what I was doing and I knew what I was doing it for. I wanted to get the knowledge I was gaining. And I also wanted those letters, which perhaps more than the fellowship itself, having advanced degrees signals to reviewers that you're really dedicated to the cause. So I think a fellowship is a conduit to get there, but it's not the only pathway forward. And I, I don't think a fellowship is the critical component to research success. I think it's important for some people, but it's not essential for all. So we keep hearing that time can be really a limiting factor in finding time to set aside for things. And and I looking at your resume, one of the things that you spent quite a bit of time on in your early years was as a, in the medical corps of the Army Reserve. Can you comment on that, why you chose to serve and how you were able to balance that with your academic career? 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I believe in service to your university, service to your department and service to country. And when I was a resident, I got involved in something called the STRAP program, uh, which I can't tell you what the acronym stands for anymore. But basically, the military pays a stipend for you every month. And for every year of those months of stipends you take, you owe them two years of payback time. So I, I was commissioned in residency, started out as a captain, took four years of this stipend while I was in residency, which mean, uh, means I owed eight years of payback time. And for me, it was actually quite interesting. I got called up very early. This was you know during the beginning of the Iraq war and everything. And I got called up in 2003, shortly after I came to Detroit Receiving Hospital and, and Wayne State. And I had just gotten my EMF grant and I had to leave for three and a half months to go to Fort Hood in Texas. All the Fort Hood is a residency program within the military. All of their residency training people got sent overseas. And so I stepped in and I was already in residency training. So I became an interim assistant residency director, helping them with their scholarly activity for the residents who were still training in the in the military program. And so in one sense, it was great because I got to then be exposed to a new environment and help people with research ideas. We actually completed two research projects while I was down there for three and a half months, one looking at fire ant stings and one looking at treatment of friction blisters, both of which led to publications with a whole new group of colleagues. And that was great. But at the same time, I still had my study going on back in Detroit from EMF on high dose nitroglycerin. And so I needed a team in place that could keep doing this study while I was gone. And, and that is the type of thing that could only happen in an academic environment, right? Having the people there, the research infrastructure to continue doing the work, even though I was out of town. So that said, I think you know, the military piece comes from, you know, just like I said, my my background and belief in, in service, but it was a nice way to get exposed to a new environment and do research in a whole new way. In fact, down in the military, you have to go and present your research face-to-face -to, -face to an IRB and a review panel at Brook Army Medical Center, at least down in Texas. And so that experience alone, having to, again, sell your research or understand how you make a compelling argument for the work you want to do, I took that as a valuable deliverable from that experience. Definitely. I know we've really just got a, a minute or so left here. In that time, can we talk a little bit about your perspective as now a senior leader, both within emergency medicine and really medical research broadly? What kind of advice would you give to, to young emerging researchers or folks who are trying to build their career in research? So I often refer to an article uh, in the New York Times from David Brooks called The Moral Peril of Meritocracy. And David Brooks is a regular opinion writer in the Times. And this is from a couple of years ago. But basically, it was talking about how in a meritocracy system, which academia is, right, you start off on a pathway and you keep marching towards the milestones of that pathway. In academia and in, in a meritocratic environment, it's really about doing the things you need to go from instructor to assistant professor to associate professor to full professor. There's a very clear cut pathway for that, right? It's, it's well established. This is what you need to do to get from one level to another. And this is what you need to do to keep moving forward. And so it's really important you know the steps in the very beginning it's about building up your career. And then as you move forward, it's about building up the careers of others. And then once you get to that point where you've gotten to the pinnacle, right, a tenured professor in my case or, or what have you, you then step back and say, well, what's next, right? And that's where this sort of idea of two mountains comes in. The first mountain of all of our careers is this 
meritocracy where we're trying to get where we think we need to go. Once we get there, you look around and say, okay, am I where I want to be? You can start to look across to a second mountain and say, what comes next? So you can say, okay, I'm good where I'm at and I like this and I want to continue doing this for the rest of my career. Or you can say, I want to start to do something else. So where I've gotten to in my career is I reached that pinnacle on the first mountain and started saying, well, what's next for me, right? I had long started my career on thinking about how we can improve acute interventions for patients who come to the emergency department. But the second mountain for me became, how do I prevent people from having to come to the emergency department for these acute episodes that are largely preventable if we only had better care, preventive care, primary care out in the community? And so if you take acute heart failure as an example, I practice in Detroit, which is almost 80% black, and there's tremendous burden of uncontrolled hypertension in the population. And so people who come into the ER with hypertensive heart failure, it's largely a failure of the health system that these folks' hypertension wasn't controlled better before, right? And so I started thinking, how do we put in place the structure and system to do that, starting with the emergency department? And so, you know, the next phase for my career was to say, okay, I want to continue to have this supportive environment for our researchers. I want to continue to have a setting where researchers can step in and look at acute care and acute problems. But I also want to start to set up an infrastructure and an understanding of how we move beyond this? How do we start to think of preventative? Because that's equally important, if not more important for what we do as emergency physicians, right? We can't just sit back and throw band-aids on everything because society doesn't have the wherewithal, the infrastructure, the systems-based perspective to think differently. And that's where innovation comes in too, right? So we started thinking about this, building up an infrastructure in the emergency department to screen people for uncontrolled chronic conditions like hypertension and diabetes and do linkage to care activities. And then COVID hit and we were really thrust into a new world where patients stopped coming in for those types of things. A lot of sick people were in the ER and it didn't make a lot of sense to be screening for some prevention work and started to say, well, what can we do different? And we took it out into the field. And now my career has really evolved into this mindset of how do we change the way healthcare is delivered? And how do we take sort of the mindset of the emergency department, which is our doors are always open. People can come in and get what they want to. We're in your community as a resource. You can come get what you want without having to use the usual channels of healthcare. You don't have to go to a doctor's appointment. You can come out to a mobile setting. You don't have to go to a, a lab, a quest lab to get your blood work drawn. It can happen right in your neighborhood through different care delivery systems. And so I bring this up because I think it really gives people not just perspective on what they're doing now, but perspective in the big picture. It's very important as you start your research career to understand what your goals and aspirations are. And as you grow in your research career, it's okay to allow yourself to transition and transcend over time as you learn more and gain more expertise, confidence, knowledge, connections, what what have you, to start to think about the next step and the next layer of what you want to do. And with that, we are out of time, but I think that is a perfect note for us to end on a, a really inspiring thought about the future of emergency medicine and the role that our research can play in building better health systems and better patient outcomes and, and really a better quality of life for all of the patients we serve. Thank you again so much uh, to Dr. Levy for joining us and, and for sharing your perspective on this. We're so grateful for you to take in the time and, and for all you do for us in the field of emergency medicine. Well, thank you, Cole. And thank you so much for having me on. You know, I love our field. I love what we do both 
in the acute care setting, but also the mindset that we have, which is it doesn't matter what the problem is, I'm here to try and fix it. And I think if we come at research that same way, apply that same mindset, we have a huge opportunity in our specialty to make big changes and big differences in the way uh, you know people receive healthcare and, and their outcomes. Definitely. And it's, it's exciting to see where this goes over the next few years. It's an exciting time to be a part of emergency medicine. Thank you to everyone who, who is listening and been a part of this series so far. It's an exciting journey to be a part of. And thank you for being a member of SAM. As a reminder, our continued series will be available on the SAM website under the BioSketch series. And we look forward to seeing you all in the future.